0: College Sunday like we do every fall where we're gonna have a bunch of pizza here Uh, we're just gonna have a bunch of fun and tables out there just to welcome back and have a meal with all of these returning college students so if you guys are here volleyball team I think there's another team here as well Um, softball who who am I missing here right maybe maybe not Um, you're like in silence Um, (laughs) but I know we've got these teams here if you're back again we'd love to have you join us for that but I want to start with a story here this morning. One of the more powerful movies that I've seen in the last several years was called Just Mercy. And this is a true story, it's key. This is a true story, not just a Hollywood tale, true story about a lawyer named Brian Stevenson, who is a recent and somewhat idealistic graduate of Harvard Law School. And rather than taking a big corporate job, he moved down to Alabama to help serve poor people who could not afford legal representation. So he began as a free advocate, a free intercessor, if you will. Soon, uh, he found himself meeting with inmates on death row. And these were people who had committed the most horrible and atrocious crimes. And as Bryan Stevenson was meeting with these convicted felons, he met one man named Walter McMillan. And Walter often went by the nickname Johnny D, so I'll refer to him that way, Johnny D. And as he got to hear Johnny D's story, he began to sense something was off, something wasn't quite right that he had been convicted. Johnny D shared with him that the entire conviction rested on the testimony of one man named Ralph Myers, who was himself a convicted felon, which that's not a big deal, but he had only agreed to give this testimony in order to be given a lighter sentence himself. So Ralph Myers, the only witness against Johnny D, had a deep motive to lie. And seeing this, Brian Stevenson requested a retrial, felt that there was injustice, that Johnny D had been wrongly convicted but he quickly began to run up against obstacles in the Alabama justice system against the Attorney General, so he had to persevere again and again and again. And in his fight for justice, he even went and met with Ralph Myers. And he even had Ralph admit to him that he had made up his eyewitness testimony against Johnny B. That none of it was true. He had made it up so that he could have this lighter sentence. So Johnny D's been landed on death row unjustly, wrongly accused. As Brian hears this, he's like, this this should be so easy to get this case thrown out, right? This should be so simple. But he still ran up against obstacle after obstacle and had to persevere. He even showed up on the front step of the Attorney General, knocking on his door, appealing for justice to be done for Johnny D. But rather than getting the court case thrown out, Brian Stevenson was thrown off the Attorney General's lawn, kicked off of his property. Justice was not done. I say all of this because this is what a good lawyer and advocate does. Right? They don't stop. They don't give up. They keep persevering for the sake of justice and the one for whom they are interceding. So I say this too because we need, honestly, more people like Brian Stevenson in our world. We need more people who are an advocate for the poor and the mar- marginalized, who are moved by injustice. They want to give their heart and their labor for this kind of work. But I also share this story because Scripture speaks about an advocate that we have who also does not stop, does not cease, but continues to intercede for us. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. This summer we've been going through a series really simple. We've just been looking at Jesus. What does it mean to know Jesus? And who is he? So we've looked at Jesus' wisdom, we've looked at his holiness, his empathy. It's been refreshing for my heart, looking at the goodness of our Savior. But this morning, maybe a different topic than most have heard this morning, I want to look at Jesus' intercession for us. So again, this comes from the book of Hebrews chapter 7 verses 25 through 28. We have this on screens for you as well, but I'll read this out loud for us. Again, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. It says, Therefore, He, meaning Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through Him, because He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, Pure, set apart for sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever." I know some of these statements might feel a little odd or strange to you, but I want us to look back at verse 25. There's one key word here I want us to focus on. It says that because he always lives to intercede for them. To intercede for them. Again, this is not a word that we often use in our day-to-day life, but it's partly why I shared this story of Brian Stevenson. He's an example of what it means to intercede to be an advocate, to mediate for someone, to take on their case as if it is your own, and to argue for them, to plead for them, to seek justice for them. That is what it means to intercede. What we respect about someone like Brian Stevenson, beautifully, is that he is an advocate in interceding for those who are wrongly accused, like Johnny D. That's what we find moving. But what's so strange, honestly, and a bit terrifyingly good about Jesus, is that he intercedes for those who are guilty. See, most times we get moved by someone like Brian Stevenson interceding for someone who's clearly innocent. But what we're going to look at today is Jesus intercedes for those who are full of shame and full of guilt. Jesus intercedes for those who have that nagging sense in their gut that they have done wrong. Jesus is interceding for those who are haunted by memories of what they should not have done or what they have left undone. Jesus is appealing and interceding and an advocate for the guilty and the shamed. Do you see this? It's what a marvel about him. But for us to really appreciate this from jesus and to understand the intercession he's bringing us need to step back and first see our need for jesus's intercession so say with me first of all our need for jesus's intercession said this in hebrews chapter 7 verse 27 let me read it one more time says that he First, for his did not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First, for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He sacrificed for their sins. The reason why we need intercession is very simple, according to Hebrews. It's because of our sins. What do mean by this? It means that we all have this stamp of self-centeredness in us, that we will inevitably seek our own power and our own pleasure, that we all intuitively and without fail make ourselves the center of the universe, that we all live in rejection of making God the most glorious, the one that we love the most, the one that we honor the most, and instead we make ourselves the center. So it's simple but important that it is our sin that has separated us from God. If there was no sin, there would be no need for intercession. If there was no sin, there would be no need for an advocate. We would already be okay and in deep relationship with God. But because there is sin, Hebrew says, we need intercession. Now hang, hang with me here. I, I get that a lot of people would be wondering, like, what is it with Christians and always talking about people's sin? <laughs> what is it with Christians and always trying to make people feel as bad about themselves as they possibly can? What is this? And honestly, I understand this. I understand that there's a, a bit of an oddness to talking about the wrongness of our hearts. We're not used to this at all. In our modern world, we're, t- we're told a very different story. There's a great pastor and author named Mark Sayers that draws out this modern story about who we are that's a little bit different that you might be familiar with that makes sin such an odd thing for us to hear about. So again, this is a modern Story, a non-religious story about where we find life. And it goes something like this, four ideas. First of all, Mark says that we believe and are told in our modern world through TV shows, through movies, through podcasts, through magazines, everything you're taking in, what you'll hear is, first of all, that you are good. You are good. I mean, deep, core part of who you are is good. You might at times do something wrong, but according to our non-religious secular world, it tells you that in the deep core of who you are, you're a good person. Secondly, it tells us that we have lost touch. We've lost touch with our true selves because of external pressures and identities. It's because of pressure from family and friends, and the society around you that you need to act and be a certain way, that's why we lose touch with who we are, and we start losing that, and start faking to try to please other people. We put on a mask, we lose touch with our true self. Thirdly, this modern story says that if we want to rediscover our true self, we must do this by getting rid of these constraints. We must get rid of these external identities that are pushed on us. This is the only way. So you need to throw off pastors like me telling you that you have sin in your life. You need to stop listening to those things, all these external pressures of who you are, and you just need to get back to who you are internally. Then, and here, this fourth one, then and only then will you have the good and free life. Then and only then. You must abandon the traditions, the identities forced on you from other people, That's how you find life and freedom. Now as I share this, some of you may be saying, honestly, I resonate with what you just shared, Caleb. That feels true to me. I I like those ideas. I believe those ideas. I agree with them. Uh, Again, I find this understandable because much of what I just shared in this modern secular story is half-truths. I agree with much of these statements, but like every good piece of bait, they have to be covered with something on the outside that looks good and agreeable, that hides the hook and the lie down deeper in. So what's so difficult about this modern story that we're told over and over and over again, is that much of it is true. There are external pressures. We, we do lose touch with parts of who we are. Sometimes we need to put away the other voices, but do you see the hook in this modern story? For instance, if you really take this and own this in your heart, what it does is that it tells people that if you are internally, deeply good, that anything wrong going on in your life really isn't your fault. It's because of outside things around you, external pressures, that's what's truly to blame. So this kind of story has increasingly led our modern world to be hesitant about taking responsibility for their actions. It leads people to be numb to repentance, to, to put at arm's length ever truly changing because the problem is not in me, the problem is out there. Do you see this? I am internally good. The problem's not with me. It's outside. So we can always blame shift and put it elsewhere. It robs us of responsibility and change. For instance, I'm not the only one seeing this are Mark Sayers, but the New York Times in a book review had this to say. It was a book on character, and the author was drawing out how people are really reticent about taking responsibility. said, this is not who I am, a student at American University pleaded after a video circulated of her using a racial slur. That's not the real me, the YouTuber Shane Dawson said, acknowledging his long history of wearing blackface in videos. It's not me not the real me not the true me others afflicted by this sudden spate of bodily possession the ufc fighter conor mcgregor filmed this is a couple years ago punching a man in the head at a pub there's a missouri woman captured in a video last month again this is years ago draped in a confederate flag shouting kkk and telling someone i will teach my grandkids to hate you all all of these people when confronted with the wrong that they had clearly done and been caught on video doing, all of them said, that's not me. That's not the real me. That's not who I really am. Who is it then? who was doing this wrong action if it wasn't you see we have been fooled into thinking the real me is deep down good so i could not be responsible for these actions let me put it this way we are allergic in our modern world to recognizing our wrongdoing and sin we are allergic to this we hear about it and we begin to shed it we irrationally Detach ourselves from responsibility for our actions and what's going on in our hearts. And hear me. This is destructive. This modern story leads to new cycles of injustice. It leads people to stay in immaturity and to resist hearing critical feedback on the actions of their heart. That's not me. That's not the real me. Do you see this? Do you see the hook and the lie here? Compare this instead to Jesus' teaching here from the book of Matthew. Let me read this. Hear Jesus and what he has to say. But the things that come out of a person's mouth (laughs) come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Do you notice that Jesus is not saying that the deep part of who you are, your heart is good. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it's out of your heart, the deep place that these wrong things are coming. It's not external to you. It comes from deep within you. It is your heart that is the problem. Now hear me. Jesus is also to teach you that you are made in the image of God. It's not that you are as wicked as you could possibly be. You, there is good that God has created in you, but what is wrong with your life? It is, is it simply external pressures and identities that have been put on you? No, Jesus wants you to awaken and say, no, I see it is hidden deep in my own heart. That's where this wickedness, this lying, this theft, this gossip, that's where it comes from, from our own hearts. let me say do you have the maturity the honesty to recognize this disease in your heart this is true for all of us every single person no matter your background no matter your experience this is the issue for all of our hearts so if we need intercession because of our sin how does this come to us we want to explore the rest of our time how does Jesus intercede for us Here again what it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says that Jesus is able to save completely, to save completely those who come to him. (laughs) So good. He's not able to save in part or in measure or just a little bit and leaves the rest up to us to improve our lives and to earn God's favor. That's not how Jesus' intercession works. He saves completely those who come to him. How does he do this? Two ideas I want you to hear this morning. First of all, that Jesus intercedes for us by his death and his blood that has been shed for us. That's first. Secondly, we look at how Jesus intercedes for us by continually living in the presence of God and making requests for us. But first of all, Jesus intercedes for us based on his death and his blood shed for us. Often, when people consider this idea of someone interceding, again, ideas like what I shared with Brian Stevenson come to mind. But maybe in a bit of an unhealthy way for many people, as you think about Jesus interceding for you, you might think that Jesus is trying to make an argument before God in his presence about why you should be accepted based on what you have done. So in our minds, this is how we play it out, at least in my own mind, something like this. We think Jesus is standing before God and saying, Father, I know Caleb messed up this last week, but you know, he means really well. So let's give Caleb another chance, right? Let's just see if he can do better this next week. Another day goes by. Father, I know Caleb's done it again. He's not worthy once yet again. But look, Father, Caleb's got potential. Let's just give him another try. Let's just see where things go. Another day goes by, I, I, know, I, I know Father Caleb's messed up once yet again, but he did something kind to someone two days ago, so, so maybe we should give him another chance. Another day goes by, and Jesus is saying, Father, I know, Caleb's messed up once yet again, and if we could hear him, maybe Jesus would be speaking like, Caleb, Caleb, like you've got to get your act together. And you got to try a little bit harder. Give me something here to work with, Caleb. I'm doing my best to appeal and to intercede for you, but you got to shape up, buddy, because I'm running out of material. But isn't that not what we think a little bit in our minds, what Jesus' intercession is like for us? What can he find in us to make an appeal, wrestling through the best arguments? Hear me, this is not how Jesus' intercession works for us. Instead, the hope that we are told is that Jesus' death for us is the once and for all argument. Jesus' blood, hear me, shed for people, is the last statement on our behalf. It is the argument. It is his death, not us. This is our hope. So it says this in Hebrews later. It says this. I have a slide here for you. It says, you have come to the judge, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's one of those many lines in scripture you could read and say, that's odd, and just keep moving on. But what is the author of Hebrews wanting us to see here? How is blood speaking a better word? Last time I checked, my blood doesn't say anything. Yours, no? It doesn't speak a better word. That's not how blood operates. But what the Hebrew author of Hebrews is wanting us to see is that back in one of the first stories in the Old Testament, it's about two brothers, Cain and his younger brother, Abel. And one day Cain got jealous and angry, and he killed his younger brother, Abel, out in a field. It said that his blood was spilled out on the field, and God saw Abel's blood on the ground. And it says this poetically. That it, was, it was as if Abel's blood cried out from the ground to God. Abel's blood was crying out for justice. It was crying out for God to intervene. Crying out for God to do something. So in a sense, his blood was speaking. Do you see this? But now in Hebrews, the author says, Jesus' blood is speaking a better word. So Jesus' blood on the cross has been shed that he has suffered and he has died. And as his blood was poured out, the Father sees his blood. But it speaks a better word. Instead of saying, justice be done, it tells us justice has already been done in Jesus. Do you see this? Rather than saying, Lord, bring judgment. Jesus' blood speaks, judgment has already been brought in me. Rather than crying out from the the ground for vengeance and for revenge, Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus' blood for us is crying out. And it is saying, Father, I have already paid. I have taken the justice and the punishment that they deserved upon myself. So, Father, the just thing to do now is to fully forgive these people, to reconcile them to yourself. So, again, Jesus' death is the once and for all statement. It is the end-all argument for you and I. Jesus needs to say nothing more. It has all been said in his death on the cross. Do you see this? Do you see this? there's more here. Secondly, I want to wrap up with this. That Jesus intercedes for us by continually living, this is beautiful, in God's presence and making requests for you and I. Making requests for you and I. That Jesus actually is in the presence of God, speaking on your behalf. That a good intercessor, a good advocate is like Brian Williams. That they will identify with the person they are representing. They'll take their case as if it is their own. They'll they'll know their weaknesses. They'll, They'll know their suffering. They'll know what they've been through, and they'll identify and sympathize with the person they represent. This is what a great intercessor does. What we are told in Hebrews is that Jesus is fully human like us. He has lived through everything like we have lived through. So he can sympathize with us in our suffering. He can sympathize in us in what we endure. He can sympathize with us in our weakness and in our need. So Jesus is the perfect advocate for you and I. He's not ignorant of what we experience, but he knows it intimately and firsthand. So that even as Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane for his disciples, crying out to the Father on their behalf, we believe that Jesus is still right now in a human body. Do you know this? Jesus is even right now in a resurrected human body at the right hand of the Father, and he is pleading for you and I, making specific requests for us, still fully human. But more than that, the marvel of Jesus is that he is also fully God, fully human and fully God. So he can hear and know the requests of every man, woman, and child around the world before a word is even on their lips. He knows them. So he can't just represent one person at a time. He can hear and represent every single one of us because he is God. He does not need to listen one at a time. He knows our hearts before we speak a word. What better intercessor could you have than one that knows every weakness of your heart and sympathizes with you? And one that knows everything you are experiencing before you say a word. This is the one who stands before the Father on your behalf. This is why Romans 8 says the same beautiful truth. It says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Hear this. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. He's interceding for you. One theologian, he says it this way. Hear this encouragement from Louis Burkhoff. He says this, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds, and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. He says, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. Do you see the encouragement of this truth? That you have a good king in Jesus, fully man and fully God, who is appealing and making specific requests for you, for you in your life. In the midst of your struggles and trials this week, you have a king who sees you and isn't just blindly watching or careless, but is advocating for you in his love. Continually, without fail, persevering, will not stop, will not stop. We're about to take communion here in a little bit and our band can come back up but i want to finish up by actually telling you the end of this story of Johnny D. I don't just want to leave you hanging <laughs> have to go home and watch Just Mercy. But at the end of this movie what finally occurs is that this Brian Stevenson perseveres and perseveres and takes this retrial all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court. And as they are sitting in court they hear that Ralph Myers admits that he made up his testimony and the judge asks pointedly to the Attorney General if they will throw out the case. The same Attorney General that kicked Brian Stevenson off his lawn. And finally, after advocating so endlessly, the Attorney General agrees to dismiss the case and Johnny D. is a free man once again. Honestly, I encourage you to learn more about Brian Stevenson's life and the work that he's doing. It is phenomenal Christian work. But I tell you all of this again, because this same beautiful truth is what's happened in our hearts. That you've had a good king intercede and advocate for you, and his case has been won. That you have been set free, not because of your work, not because of how well you have lived, but because of the faithful king you have in Jesus. So this morning, we're going to take communion as a way for us to taste and see this all the more clearly. We're going to have Risa uh, Wenzel, she'll be up here. She's going to have our gluten-free bread. So if you cannot eat gluten, we have an option for you here with gluten-free bread. The other two stations will have gluten bread. So if you do not need gluten-free, I'd encourage you to go to those just to make sure we have enough. So again, Risa here, she will have our gluten-free bread. And when they come up, when you come up, you'll grab that bread,
1: and you'll hear them say, the body of Christ broken free.